May the name of Jesus be lifted up in our worship. Praise the God for beautiful music that we can use to exalt Him, to learn about Him, and to rejoice in the things that He is doing. If you need a Bible, please uh, raise your hand. We would love to bring one to your seats, and you'll be using it today. We're in the 22nd uh, chapter of Luke. We love to see people come to church with their Bible in hand. I know some people are using their Bible on their phone now. That's okay, too. If that's the way you, uh, you prefer to study, that's fine, just as long as you have that Word and it is something you can see and interact with as we are studying together. We know that it would be a benefit to you today because the Word of God never returns void. So as long as our worship services are, are pointing us towards Christ through His Scripture, we're going to be blessed by them. And uh, So if you've got your, your Bible, go ahead and open up, turn there to Luke chapter 22. In 1741, Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote a pr and preached one of the most famous sermons in American history. <clears throat> the title of that sermon may be familiar to you. Some of you might even studied that uh, sermon in high school English class. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it describes in vivid detail the incredible seriousness of sin and explained from Scripture that God is not only the creator of all things, but He is also the judge of all that He has created. He will bring justice to His people and to what He has made. Now, Jonathan Edwards points out that it is only the merciful grace of God that currently keeps sinners like us from the fiery torments of hell. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And we need to recognize that the sin that we have committed against God makes us guilty of a rebellion that is justifiably punishable by damnation. And Jonathan Edwards didn't mince any words. He, he preached with great conviction and with vivid clarity just how serious our sin is and how far we are from God unless God intervene in our life and save us from that sin. Mankind needs to seriously humble themselves and repent of their iniquity trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ so that when this life is over, they will not face the terrible wrath of God that they have earned by their rebellion. That sermon made a major impact on our nation. It was at, the time, at that time that America was going through what we call historically the Great Awakening. And it was a time where there was a widely renewed interest in faith and in following after Jesus Christ. And so that sermon clarified for Americans that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God who is angry at sin but wants to save us through Jesus Christ, His Son. But the scene that we're going to study from Luke 22, verses 63 through 71 today, could accurately be described as God in the hands of angry sinners. Please turn there now if you're not there. Jesus has, has done more than enough up to this point in his ministry to prove that he was sent here of God. He's performed great signs and miracles. He has fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies. His preaching has been done with power and with an authority that no other preacher could match. But here we see Jesus bound. Jesus is not preaching in this moment, but he is silent, facing a wave after wave of unrelenting accusations by the most powerful men in Israel, Jesus stands quietly. By the time we arrive at verse 63, Jesus has faced both the former high priest Annas and the current high priest Caiaphas. They've put Jesus through a verbal onslaught in an attempt to extract some kind of a confession 
that they can use against him in the court of law. Now the Levitical law of Moses forbade a legal trial to be held at night. Though they have already held two, in a sense, trials for Jesus already in the cloak of darkness, they must wait for the sun to rise before they can actually do a legal proceeding and condemn him before the council. So they're just waiting for that sun to come up. And in the meantime, Luke reveals the kind of mistreatment that Jesus is suffering at the hands of his accusers who are holding him captive. And so we are in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 63 through 71 today. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's bow for a moment and ask that the Lord would let these words of divine scripture, these eternal truths, sing into our hearts and affect us just how God has designed them to affect us today. God, we praise you for not being silent. We praise you for the way that you speak to us through your Holy Scripture. And we pray that in concert with the Holy Spirit that is working within us, Lord God, that we would have clarity and understanding today. Father, if there is among us today someone who does not yet believe in you, I pray that you would use these words to awaken in them a new understanding that they have never been able to get to on their own power. But Father, would you help them to see clearly today their great need for you. And for those of us who have experienced that, remind us today of the gravity of what you have done to make us yours. Lord God, let us not take our sin lightly. Let us reverence and honor Jesus Christ for his willingness to give his life for us in love. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Luke is bringing us up to speed here in these verses to follow the storyline of Peter's threefold denial. We took some time to really focus on Peter's heart last week, but while he was going through his own personal struggle, while he was denying his Savior three times, there were still proceedings happening all around. Jesus was being accused of great things just as Peter was denying him. We read in the opening verses of this passage an incredibly sad picture of God's Son being shamefully mistreated. The one who has came to save us the one who is willing to suffer for us is being treated like a pathetic criminal. Though the unrivaled power of God is in Jesus, though at any minute he could call out and instantly an army of angels would come and vanquish these men who do him injustice, he does not call upon them. Instead, he does nothing to defend himself. He simply stands and endures their attacks. Men who could never oppose the living God in His power and glory are here allowed to subject Jesus to a barrage of abuses. And so we see Jesus in the hands of angry sinners. He is beaten. 
He is mocked. They spit in his face. Do you remember the movie um, or the book that was written by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? And there is a scene in that movie or in that, that, that book, if you've read it, where Aslan, this lion who represents uh, the mighty Jesus, the redeeming Son of God, is bound. He, he surrenders himself to the evil forces that are waging against him because those whom he has loved are being held captive. And so he comes and surrenders himself and he allows himself to be bound and that majestic, beautiful beast, that lion, is tied down to a slab of stone. And these lesser animals, these despicable creatures of darkness are mocking him and they are ripping out tufts of his hair and they are scratching him with their claws and all the while you see in his face not defeat but sadness for them. A broken heart for the fact that they have no idea what they are doing inciting judgment upon themselves for the way that they are treating him. He remains a king though he is allowing himself to be subdued. And that is the picture we have of Jesus right now. Though they spit at him, though they defile him, though they say things that are unrepeatable to his face, he still remains king, saddened by their sin. What compels these temple guards and priests to meet, mistreat Jesus like this? Was it because he had been so swift in defeating these chief priests in their arguments when they confronted him? In, in the synagogues and in the courtyards, when their scribes came and tried to get him in to catch 22s and tried to make him stumble in his beliefs, he stood his ground every time and they walked away looking foolish. Is that why here they are exacting a pound of revenge on Jesus? Because that still stings how they were made to look foolish in front of this superior intellect? Was it because they thought of him as a joke? And they were simply entertaining themselves while the night unfolded and then they waited for this final trial to take place. Or perhaps it was, become, it was because feeble men get thrills from taunting something greater than themselves. Like a matador who comes before a mighty bull and, and stabs it and pokes it and prods it. And everyone cheers that man on because you know, for all accounts that bull should be destroying that man but somehow he's able to evade it. Is that the motivation behind these men's cruelty to the Son of God? No doubt it had to do with the fact that the holiness of Jesus is an indictment on the wickedness of every man. Jesus' very presence, His purity, the perfection of His righteousness incites anger and hatred from these Israelites who were content to have a form of godliness. They did many religious things. They had a lot of religious esteem and reputation, yet they had denied its true power. They were ignoring the very provision that God had given to them, this Savior Jesus Christ. The fact that He shined so brightly with a righteousness they could not match with a true obedience meant that being near Him only revealed to them the deception that they had cast over their own selves and their own perception of who they were. They could not hide from their sinfulness in the presence of His righteousness. And it made them feel guilty. It made them feel threatened. And so they lash out at again against Him. They lash out at His purity because the weight of their sin has humiliated them. Ironically, these men even go so far as to blindfold Jesus, the one who has pure sight, 
is made to be blind before them. And then they strike him in the face and they shout out to him, prophesy. What they're saying there, if you, if you don't understand the references there, they're trying to mock him because people have said that he's a prophet, that he, he sees with the, the eyes of God. And, and yet they're saying, well, if you really are a prophet, then tell us which one of us has just hit you in the face. In fact, if you are truly of God, then why would God allow you to be hit in the first place? So obviously, you're not a prophet is essentially what they are saying. These men are doing great disgrace to the one who should be exalted and honored. This is clearly meant to remind the reader of the gospel of the shameful way that Israel had treated the prophets in the ages past. Don't forget that Jesus himself, some chapters ago in Luke 13, um, cried out, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Israel sadly has a history of treating the prophets just as they are treating Jesus right now. The prophet Jeremiah just so happens to be my, what I'm studying in my personal devotion times right now, and, and I'm struck by how many similarities I see in the way they treated Jeremiah. In chapter 20 of, of his book, he was beaten and placed in stockades where he was hung as a criminal in front of people so they could mock him and deride him. In chapter 38 of Jeremiah, he was accused of treason. He was thrown into a dirty, muddy cistern and made to wallow in the mud while they mocked him. So these Israelites have treated the prophets that came before Jesus in much the same way that they're treating him now. They're treating him this way because he told the truth. Just as Jeremiah told the truth and brought the sins of the people to their attention, so Jesus is revealing to them their brokenness and their absolute inability to overcome the sin that has put them where they are. It was not a message the people wanted to hear. And so they lashed out against him. And here, the chief priests and their enforcers are doing the same thing to Jesus, only worse. Soon their punches will become lashes. Their accusations will become condemnations. And the anger they feel at being exposed will lead to the execution of this man that wants to bring them to the truth. The physical harm that they did to Jesus was despicable, but was not even, not even nearly as serious as the damage they tried to do by blaspheming his name. Blasphemy means the insulting of God's name, his character, his work, or his attributes in a written or verbal way. When we seek to do damage against the, the integrity of who God tells us He is, then we commit blasphemy against Him. The Hebrew culture of which Jesus and these chief priests are a part did not see a person's name just as a convenient title. Nowadays, people choose a name maybe based on how it sounds or how popular it is at the time or maybe because they, there was somebody else who had that name that they admired or liked. But in the Hebrew tradition, in their culture, a, a person's name often carried with it significant truth that that person was hopefully living according to, that that person was representing with their life. And so a person's name was understood to represent the sum total of that individual's identity and reputation. To blaspheme the name of Jesus left more than bruises. It left scars on his reputation. It left people wondering if Jesus really was who he said he was. And so as they hurl insults at Jesus and mockingly treat him like he was some false prophet, they attempt to undermine his preaching and make him look to the people like a fool who is unworthy of being followed and listened to. 
this scene should make us feel uncomfortable. What we see unfolding here in this latter part of Luke 22 should make us angry. Not only for these temple guards who did these things to Jesus, but it should make us angry at ourselves for standing by as Jesus is mocked in many of the same ways in our own culture. Isn't the name of Jesus being blasphemed all around us? And yet so often as his followers, we stand silently and allow it to happen. We don't stand up for the integrity of God's name. We don't speak the truth to correct the errors that are being pumped out of the airwaves in our culture, making people think that Jesus was something less than the perfect Son of God. This mockery still continues to happen today. The famous painter Rembrandt once painted a picture of the crucifixion. And in that picture is a figure standing back in the darkness who doesn't really fit the, uh, the wardrobe of the day. And that's because the man painted in the background is Rembrandt himself. As he painted the picture of Jesus on the cross and reflected on the scriptures, he began to realize that he too had been a mocker of Jesus, that his sin was serious, that every time he refused to obey the word of the Lord, he too was mocking this man who loved so dearly that he would give his life for those who had sinned against him. And so we see the shameful way that these people treated Jesus, and we should feel the weight of that on ourselves as we do not stand like we should for the truth of his great name. As we come to verses 66 to 71, time passes. The rooster crows, and Peter realizes his terrible mistake. He leaves the courtyard in shame. He is weeping as we studied last week. The call of that rooster, of course, is spurred on by the rise of the sun. And that tells us that a third trial is at hand. The third trial is the epitome of mockery. To intentionally try and decorate wickedness so that it has the form and the appearance of godliness and legality is a great exercise in injustice. And that's exactly what the chief priests are doing here. They are running a third mock trial, but they're doing it so that it looks like they're on the up and up. In this section, we will see three different titles that are, are used to describe Jesus. And each one of those titles that we use to describe Jesus has significance to the legal proceedings. And so we're going to take the next uh, several moments to look at those titles and, and to see how they, they bring understanding to us as we look through this section. First of all, we see Jesus described as the Christ. The Christ. Christ means anointed one. An anointing was when someone of authority or power would take a special oil and they would ceremonially drip that oil onto the forehead of a person who was being set aside for a special task that they were to accomplish. So the anointed one was one specially set aside for a work that God had prepared for him to do. Christ is a, a dynamic equivalent to the title Messiah. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus Messiah, anointed one, one who was set aside and chosen by God to accomplish his great and perfect will. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us, insist these chief priests. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. They want Jesus to confess clearly 
that he sees himself as the anointed one, the Messiah, the prophesied king that was projected to come by word of the Old, Old Testament scripture. Now there was nothing in the Jewish law against claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, many before Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah, but their actions and their inability to stand perfectly proved that they were in fact not the Messiah. There is a strategic reason that they seek this confession from Jesus. This is the confession that will give them leverage in the councils against Rome. This is not against the, the Jewish law. It is against Roman law. A spiritual savior would mean very little to a secular court. But a potential king, someone who might rise up and oppose the Caesar, that was something that the secular government would be concerned about. And so they are asking Jesus to confess his status as the anointed Christ so that they might bring that claim before Caesar, before his governor Pontius Pilate, and condemn him in a secular court. In the next chapter of Luke, this will be the foundation of their claims against Christ when he is reviewed by Pontius. Luke 23.2 is going to say, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now that claim, of course, will only be half true. Jesus never forbade them to give tribute to Caesar. In fact, he instructed his disciples to render unto Caesar that which belonged to Caesar. But Jesus indeed is a king. A king on a scale that those Roman leaders could not even comprehend. Luke, the author of our gospel, went to great lengths to establish this very fact early in his gospel. Luke 2.11, the angel told the shepherds, For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those shepherds were told that this was the, uh, the, the anointed one that had been identified in Old Testament prophecy. The one that they had been waiting for had finally arrived. His birth signified the fulfillment of what the nation of Israel had been waiting so long for. In chapter 2, verse 26, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit had revealed to an aged man named Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. God had revealed to him that this anointed Messiah, this coming king who would reign, this one from the line of David, had, would finally come and would show himself to Simeon before he left this earth in death. And then in Luke 3.15, Luke says that the people were wondering whether John the Baptist, this mighty preacher who came and told the nation of Israel to repent for forgiveness of their sins, they wondered if he was the Christ. And he stopped them and said, No, 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 I am not the Christ. But then he pointed forward to Jesus, saying that this is the Christ, the one who comes as the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world. Though Jesus has not denied that he is indeed this Messiah, this Christ that Israel has been waiting for, when pressed for a confession, he does not bother to answer them the way that they want him to answer, because he knows that they have already made up their minds concerning him. A true trial is a process. It's a process by which facts and testimonies and evidences are examined. Arguments and opinions are weighed. And eventually guilt or innocence is determined. These, accuser, th these accusers that bring these, these claims against Jesus, 
They know he thinks he's the Messiah, but they've already decided not to receive him as Messiah. So this, in fact, is not really a trial at all. It's a formality for them to condemn Jesus. They're not considering the facts. They've already made their minds up, and they will not receive him as Messiah no matter what he says. And sadly, this is the state of mind of so many people in the society that we live in today. There is very little willingness to consider the truth of the Word of God. The masses have already passed it off as an outdated belief system or perhaps a philosophy that is incompatible with the modern world. And this failure to consider Jesus' claims to be the Messiah reveal that a miniature trial similar to the ones we read about here in chapter 22, has happened in the sinful heart of every man. Every human being has decided to walk their own path, to reject God as king, and to live for their own whim, for their own desires. That is the very core heart of proud sin. Hating to hear that we are broken and rebellious, cringing at the thought that there is a God who will hold us accountable for our lack of righteousness, the sinful nature of man, by default, rejects the Messiah. That is, until the power of the Holy Spirit begins to work through the calluses of our toughened hearts. When that Holy Spirit begins to, against all odds, make us think differently about our sin, a sin that we used to justify, a sin that we used to excuse for ourselves, even if we condemned it in others, the Holy Spirit begins to work through our defenses and begins to make us grieve our rebellion against God. And those who walked in utter rebellion begin to see that that was wrong to do. They begin to re re resent themselves for pushing back against the holy rule of God. They begin to feel that sense of repentance. That is why evangelism without prayer is a dead enterprise. I pray that we as a church are constantly seeking to reach other people with this gospel truth that we talk about every Sunday morning. I pray that we are looking for opportunities and that we are making opportunities to try to share with others the great transformation that God has brought into our lives. But if we are doing that in hopes that our, our firm and tight arguments of logic and reason are going to win somebody over whimsically to the gospel, we are mistaken. Our evangelism must be girded with the strength of prayer because the only thing that turns a heart to Christ is God Himself. And if the Holy Spirit is not working inside of a person to make them think differently about their sin, then the trial has already happened and that person has already condemned Him. So let us be evangelistic in our heart and in our drive, but let us always reach out to people knowing that prayer is our most effective tool to actually get to the heart of that sinful, um, sinful individual, that they might turn and see their need for Jesus Christ. Jesus is not going to play into their plot to indict him. Instead, he simply proclaims a divine truth which they could not see. They blindfolded him, but they are the ones who are truly blindfolded because the truth is right in front of them and they will not receive it. But he said to them, verse 67, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
Jesus hints at the fact that the power and authority that they are trying to exercise over him in this moment is a charade that will soon be ended by the God they claim to follow. Jesus has ministered on earth, but in short order, he is prepared to leave this place and to ascend to the right hand of God the Father, where he belongs to be, and where he will preside over the hearings to determine the fates of these very men who try to condemn him. In the process of doing so, he draws our attention to the second title used of Jesus in this passage. He calls himself the Son of Man. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. <clears throat> now, Son of Man was not a title used only of Jesus. In fact, Son of Man was a title historically used very frequently of the Old Testament prophets who came and spoke the word of God boldly to the people. It was a title that was given to anyone who represented the Lord God to his people. In fact, Ezekiel uses that title of himself 88 times in his, in his book in the Old Testament. This name draws attention to the prophet's responsibilities to minister to man on behalf of God. But Jesus is the only one referred to, if you look through all Scripture, He is the only one referred to as the Son of Man. The definite article is never used for the other prophets. They are called Son of Man. Or they are called a Son of Man, but they are never called the Son of Man. Jesus alone receives the dignity of that title. Another reason why this title is significant and why Luke himself probably used it so often in his gospel is the universal nature of this designation. He has also been called the son of David, hasn't he? Remember, son of David, have mercy upon me. He is recognized as the, the Messiah who came from the line of David, from the lineage of the kingly family that so identified and defined Israel. But son of man is a more universal term. Because Jesus knows that his death on the cross and his resurrection is not just for the Jews, even though it comes as a fulfillment of promises made to the Jews, it will be, in fact, effective in saving people of all races. And so it is right to say that Jesus is a son of man, because he is not just a son of David, he is a son who cares and saves people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. Interestingly, though Jesus brings attention to this title, the chief priests leapfrog right over it. They don't even acknowledge this title. And in fact, they grab onto the son portion of what Jesus says, and then they apply it to a different title that is very significant. Verse 70, So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? He says, The Son of Man. They said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Of course, they have not heard it from his lips. This is what you call uh, an admission by silence, the fact that he will not defend himself and say that he is not the Son of Man or the Son of God is, is enough evidence for them to believe and to proclaim in the court of law that he has admitted that he believes himself to be so. Jesus is described here as the Son of God. This represents a, a real escalation. They have now condemned him in a way that the Roman courts will acknowledge. He has called himself a king. 
That threatens the secular powers. And now he has also condemned himself by calling himself the Son of God, which should be offensive to the Jewish courts, which was a violation of their sacred law. Anyone who claimed to be the Son of God was committing blasphemy. They were calling or giving themselves a greater reverence and honor than they deserved to hold, unless, of course, that person really was the Son of God. Jesus is the only begotten. If these Israelites had been paying attention to their scripture, they would see this Messiah, this anointed one that they expected and waited for, as more than just a king. The most popular understanding of what the anointed one was to accomplish was that he would come back to this world, that he would establish again the throne of David, that Israel then would be made independent from Rome, and they would rule the land of Judea again without interference from external powers. That was their concept of the anointed one, the Messiah. Most people thought of it in that way. But if they had read their scriptures closely, they would see that that's only a portion of what God hoped to accomplish through His anointed one. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn right now to Psalm chapter 2 in the Old Testament. There is so much rich prophecy about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament Psalms that as they sang in the synagogues and as they repeated these psalms to their children, they were teaching them to memorize scripture and many of those scriptures had to do with this anointed one that God was sending to save his people. And so here in Psalm 2 we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cord from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Now every Jewish person at the time of Christ, would have recognized that as a messianic prophecy. That God would not allow His people to be exiled forever, but that there would be a reestablishment of this eternal promised kingdom. The Lord has indeed set aside a Messiah, anointed king. But look at what the psalm reveals next. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In their heads, the Son of God was not literal. When they read that second half of Psalm 2, they thought of that as, oh, David is a son of God. They're talking about how this Messiah will be of the lineage of David. But what does it say in verse 7 <clears throat> that is unique? It says that he is the begotten Son. And Jesus comes proclaiming that he is the only begotten Son. This is not just referencing some descendant of David. This is talking about the true Son of the Lord God Almighty. 
Evidence abounds in Luke's record of Jesus' life that he is indeed God's Son. We think back to his baptism in chapter 3, where the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove and a voice from the heavens boomed out, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We think of the testimony of the three that went up on the mountain with Jesus and saw him transfigured. And another voice came out from the heavens in which God, Yahweh himself, said, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Again, Jesus refused to play directly into their plot. They want him to claim to be the Son of God so they can condemn him. But he's not playing their game. Their mind is made up and he knows that. So they're going to they're say he said whatever they want to say, he said. Rather, he answers directly and he responds, You say that I am. I wonder how many of those men really knew that he was the Son of God. Really had seen his miracles and understood that he was indeed the Son of God. But because of their great pride, because of their great rebelliousness, they refused to receive it. And so, literally there, they were battling the sent Son of the God they claimed to be ministering to as high priests in the nation of Israel. Jesus' confession of being the Messiah has now given them cause to try Jesus before the Roman courts. This last confession of Jesus, that he is truly the Son of God, seals his fate in the Jewish courts. And such a claim was considered by them blasphemy. And so by blasphemers, Jesus is called a blasphemer. Messiah was understood to be the most, by most to be this mortal who played a divinely ordained role in reestablishing the kingdom. But the Son of God was himself divine. Jesus knew that, though they would not accept it. 71 says, Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The chief priests are confident that they've got the confessions that they were looking for. And then as we conclude, I want us to consider the word confession. What does it mean? What, what role does confession play in these verses that we read here in Luke chapter 22? They were looking for a confession of guilt. But in Christianity, that word is used in two distinct ways. We are called to confess our sin, aren't we? We are called as those who have been enlightened by the Lord, those who have been regenerated, to confess that we are sinners before the Lord God, to confess that our sin is heinous to Him, that it is a travesty to Him. And we are called to, to name that sin out loud and to, to take responsibility for it. But in Christianity, there is another use for this word, confession. It is also used in regard to confessing the truth, isn't it? To testifying what is true and real and sent of God. The chief priests seek a confession from Jesus so that they can convict Him. Sadly, they are the ones who need desperately to confess. Romans chapter 10 verses 8 through 10 informs the church. But what does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart, the Apostle Paul writes, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is what we call, friends, the good confession of faith. It is not until the Holy Spirit 
works in you in such a way that you can see your sin in all of its seriousness, that you can recognize how detestable it is to our God, and that you can bring it before the Lord and confess it to Him, that you might be able to confess that He is stronger than your sin, that yes, Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect and sinless, spot, spotless life, not just so that He could show it off to us, but so that He can take that perfect life and bring it up a hill to Calvary, so that He would allow wicked men to nail Him to a cross, that He might take the sins of the world upon His shoulders and suffer and die for those sins so that their full penalty might be paid in the shedding of His blood. Jesus atones for those who trust in Him. And we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead. And that confession signifies that the Holy Spirit has changed us from the inside out and is changing us through sanctification. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12 goes on to say, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, somebody asked me a, last week a very good question. They said, if every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, does that mean that everyone will be saved? When God raises up all from the dead for that day of judgment and they all bow and they confess, does that mean that they will all be given saving faith in that moment? And, and the answer is, sadly, no. There is a time that God has allotted for us to see the error of our sin, to confess it, and to turn to Christ. And that time is during this life. But when this life is finished and Christ returns, at that point, He will come to judge sin. And may no, make no mistake about it, everyone who is sent into eternal condemnation in hell, not one of them will go there believing that they are still right. Not one of them will go there self-deceived, continuing to cling to this mistaken idea that Jesus isn't really the Lord and that they don't need Him, that they can do it themselves. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but those who rejected Him in this life will bow in sadness, knowing that they have put themselves on the wrong side of the battlefield against the one who would have loved to save them. So every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But while we walk this earth, now is the time to truly receive that revelation of our sin. We cannot wait forever. We must instead heed the gospel call. There were two questions that were asked of Jesus by these high priests. If you are the Christ, then tell us. Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus has answered both of those in the affirmative. The question this morning is how do we answer those questions? Do we believe the testimony of Jesus Christ, that He is indeed this anointed Messiah that God has sent to fulfill His redemptive plan? Do we confess that He is indeed more than just a prophet, more than just a king even, but that He is the very begotten Son of God? Friends, we must come to that realization that our sin is impossible for us to overcome on our own. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Anybody who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The sins that they have committed against God are still on their own ledger. But thankfully, in love, God has provided a way out for us. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the question lingers today. It is my prayer that throughout the world, as the gospel is preached in churches like this one, that people who hear this message and who have yet not given their life to Christ might be awoken by the Holy Spirit, that they might turn for the first time and believe in Jesus Christ, that they would see that their sin is indeed condemnable, that they owe a debt of life to this God whom they have offended, this God who has given them their very breath. But I hope also that they see the great love of Jesus Christ that is willing to forgive that sin by taking that punishment upon himself and standing in our place. If you are here and you have never given your life to Christ, but that is something that you are considering today, I pray that you would not hesitate. In the seat back before you is a, a little pocket and in the backs of those seats are little cards. Um, you can take that card out. There's a prayer spot where you can fill out a prayer request or a need or give a praise to us so we can share it with our congregation. We can be praying together. But on that card is also <clears throat> a little spot where you can check and indicate, I would like to know more about the gospel. If the Lord is working in your heart today, take a step of faith and fill out one of those cards and turn it in. Uh, before we leave. We've got a little metal box in the back wall. Just stick it in there um, and let us know that you're thinking about Jesus Christ and you want to know what it takes to follow after Him, to be His disciple. You have seen the evidence <clears throat> that man's heart is wicked and you want that wickedness to become overcome in your life. You want the Lord to defeat that in you. We pray that you will not leave this place here today without making a decision to follow after Jesus Christ. And that's a big choice. We don't want anyone to make that lightly. So we would love to sit with you and counsel with you. We would love to answer your questions and to pray with you if that is indeed the choice you want to make today. We pray that would happen to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you please uh, bow with me as we close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for being invincible. Though we see a picture of you being assaulted today, though we see this sad scene where you are mocked and where you are disregarded, you're treated like a joke. That is not indicative of your true power. We know that you endured that for a purpose, Lord God. There is no way that man could ever truly judge you. There is no way that man could ever truly contain you. Father God, one of the greatest mistakes this world makes is we think of ourselves <clears throat> as the jury and you as the one on trial. We think of ourselves as the one who must intellectually decide whether or not you are real. We look at the evidence, we weigh it, and we think, well, I'm going to have to say yes or no to Jesus. But in reality, you are the true judge. There is a greater counsel than the counsel of our own hearts. One day, each one of us will come before you. And the one thing that will matter is how we received this testimony that your son Jesus Christ has made today. He is the anointed one. He is your begotten son. And it is only through his death, burial, and resurrection that sin can be defeated. Father, let us be crystal clear on the fact 
that there is a judgment awaiting this world. All who dwell in it will come before your great white throne. If we have Jesus Christ, your son, if we have confessed our sin and confessed his holiness, if we have willingly given ourselves to your kingdom and surrendered our hearts to you, then when we stand in that day, condemnation will not be the result. We will be ushered into your kingdom to enjoy your presence forever. But Father, this is so serious because many, many will come in that day standing before your throne and facing judgment for their sins by themselves. Without your Son, Jesus Christ, we must stand before your wrath. I pray, Lord God, that your gospel would spare many, many people from that wrath, Lord, that you would overcome our weakness, that you would help us to see how desperately we need you, and that you would give us the great joy and hope that comes from putting our life in your hands and living for your glory. God, we thank you for this day. Please let these words rest heavy on our hearts as we prayerfully go out into this world as reflections of your light to shine into this dark place. We love you and we thank you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.